This week in KMA land, Montgomery County Solar Ordinance clears first reading. Planning for Mid-American Wind Turbine Project continues. Clorinda officials offer new angle to Page County Jail discussions. Primary races previewed at Page County GOP Caucus and Shenandoah Barbecue Competition planned for July. I'm Mike Peterson. After months of discussion and debate, Montgomery County's proposed solar energy ordinance cleared its first major hurdle this week. By a unanimous vote Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors approved the first reading of an amendment to the existing zoning ordinance regulating production of future solar energy projects in the county. The supervisors took action following a public hearing in which both oral and written comments were aired. Trip Narep of Villisca called for the board to table the amendment until necessary improvements, corrections, and clarifications can be made. Saying solar power in the county is a complicated business, Narep says it's important to get regulations right. There's no pressing need to pass this ordinance today. There are multiple sources of comprehensive solar ordinances that come from counties that already have solar farms. We should take advantage of their experience and expertise. Narup, a member of the Villisca City Council, also cited numerous errors in the original document that must be corrected. He says the county needed a clean ordinance in place. While I understand there's a reluctance to overregulate what individual farmers can do with their land, utilities typically purchase land for their solar farms. We need to have very clear rules regarding what these multi-billion dollar companies can do in Montgomery County. We won't be dealing with Donna Robinson's farm we'll be dealing with Mid-America Energy Solar Farm or with Alliant Energy Solar Farm. Narup added Iowa is blessed with some of the best farmland in the world and it would be inappropriate to turn prime cropland into hundreds of acres of solar panels. Former Supervisor Bryant Amos currently chairs the county's planning and zoning board. Amos acknowledged that a motion was made at the board's recent meeting to rescind the amendment. However, he says the motion died despite ample time for a second. Amos says the majority of the board members want the solar amendment to go forward as is. I think one of those major concerns is, can Montgomery County afford to make our ordinances so stringent that nobody's going to look at us? We've missed too many opportunities in the past. Don't cut off the future because you're worried of what might happen. The supervisors also read letters from individuals both for and against the ordinance. Supervisor Charla Schmidt asked whether the amendment could be changed in the future. Supervisor Donna Robinson replied that the regulations can be updated if needed. Robinson added that considering all the volunteer hours spent on preparing the document, it's the supervisor's duty to approve the amendment. Supervisor Mike Olson agreed, saying solar power is an ever-changing field. Changes will be made as we go forward and they probably need to be made in certain places, but I still feel personally that we need to get something on the books and get it done so that we can start this process and move forward. Board members declined waiving the second and third readings, meaning the amendment will be back on the supervisor's agenda next Tuesday morning. Well, besides solar energy, wind power has been another hot topic of discussion in KMA land in recent months. And planning for one project covering portions of southwest Page and southeastern Fremont counties continues. Invenergy is moving forward with its proposed Shenandoah Hills project, which would straddle the Page and Fremont County line south the Shenandoah and extend to the Missouri border. Company officials met with the Page and Fremont County Board of Supervisors for an informational meeting last month. 
However, Invenergy's Mark Crawl tells KMA News development for the project has been ongoing since 2016, mainly ensuring the transmission grid would stay intact with the addition of the growing wind project. Yeah, ever since 2016, we've been stepping through that um, with, with the grid operator, MISO. In addition to that, as we started gaining a significant footprint, uh, we corresponded and worked with the Iowa DNR, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and local um, consultants to study the area from an environmental perspective. Crawl reiterated the project already has over 270 landowners who have agreed to house the project. He says there were three main reasons why the company chose the respective location. One of the major factors is availability of transmission capacity on the grid. Another is a top-tier wind resource, which Iowa is you know really famous for and then really i think the third and and the most critical factor is willing landowner participation so we have all of our like i said over 270 supportive landowners um you know that really want to see this project move forward the over 200 megawatt project is estimated to generate around two million dollars annually in property tax payments to the counties along with $3 million each year in landowner payments. He says this is a big reason why they've been able to get as much buy-in as they have. As a way to diversify their income to their existing farm portfolio, their existing agricultural operation, you know, it just helps provide stability and a firm foundation for their family through time. And so I think, you know, for me specifically, and certainly, you know, the company, the project, that's a, a huge benefit that we're looking to bring to the area, quarters of the project. Despite concerns raised at the informational meetings for non-participating neighboring landowners, Crawl assured that the company has done as much outreach as possible and will continue to do so through the project's subsequent phases. Crawl says the company is finishing its permit application and expects to file with both counties within a month. The counties will then hold a public hearing before approving or denying the project. No wind turbine discussion for the Page County Board of Supervisors this week. Instead, a twist to a proposed county jail project was the main agenda item. During its regular meeting Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors discussed a recent Samuel Group jail meeting with County Sheriff Lyle Palmer and Jail Administrator Tony Shackleford. Included in attendance at the recent meeting were Clarinda City Administrator Gary McLarnon and Clarinda Police Chief Keith Brothers to discuss a possible sharing of the building. Shackleford says they're looking to improve where they house their department head and staff. Presently, I believe the chief is at the New City Hall, uh-huh. and his officers are at the regular the old police department. Okay. Um, I think the city's plan, from what I understand, is to abandon the old city hall okay. at some point, and they were interested in uh, putting their, the chief. their own police department at the wing right. facility right. Right. like that. Not, nothing about unification or anything okay. like okay. that. Palmer says the situation could be similar to how Montgomery County worked with the city of Red Oak with sharing the Montgomery County Law Enforcement Center building, which currently houses the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office and Red Oak Police. I think Red Oak did this. Montgomery County didn't put the bill, if my memory is correct, on Red Oak Police Department adding on. The city of Red Oak paid the difference for that. But it gave them an idea down the road of what Florinda would be needing. However, both Palmer and Shackleford say there is still the way to go before the sharing the building or potential expansions of the jail plans would be made official. Palmer adds discussion to the meeting also surrounded how to best utilize space for jail cells in the new facility. They're also looking at different uh, cell sizes um, as far as 
if we would double bunk a single person cell. So in the future, if we needed to put two people in there for capacity compared to one, that was basically what it was. Uh, you could get more out of having a two person cell with a bunk one on top of the other than you can a single because the floor space isn't increased that much. However, most notable during the meeting was the lack of representation from the supervisors who say they were unaware of the discussion. Since the county serves as the bonding agency for the project, Supervisor Chuck Morris says the lack of communication needs to be avoided in the future. We all think that there's clearly a need for a mm -hmm. jail, and we're going to be your biggest cheerleader. And that's what we need. We've, we've got to be feel like we're part of it. We may be dumber and stumps at the conversation that is taking place, but to be, it feels like we were held out of the loop intentionally, and I don't think that was the case. That was not the okay. case. So, uh, but it's just important. We're all going to have to roll up our sleeves. It's not going to be easy. Palmer affirmed that the board was not intentionally left out of the loop, and both he and Shackleford say they would work closely with the board for any future meetings. Page County residents will have at least one contested race for county office in the June primary. Attendees at a Page County Republican midterm caucus at Shenandoah High School Monday night received a sneak preview of a county supervisor's race. Incumbent Alan Armstrong faces a challenge from Todd Maher for the county's 2nd District Supervisor's Republican nomination. Both candidates' nomination papers were circulated prior to the main caucus meeting inside the high school's library. Armstrong is running for his second full term on the board. He told caucus attendees he enjoys being a supervisor, despite the controversy that sometimes goes with a job. I've lived here in town for approximately 42 years, owned and operated a restaurant downtown for the last 24 years, enjoyed being a supervisor. It's uh, very controversial at times, and uh, for those of, that read the newspaper, listen to the news, we get a lot of airtime on a lot of different topics. I appreciate those that have called and, and commented on things. It's uh, not always easy making decisions. It's kind of a unique thing about being American. There's a lot of different ways to look at things and we don't always agree. Page County GOP co-chair Lauren Johnson read a letter on behalf of Mayher who is unable to attend Monday night's caucus. Mayher has been employed for 25 years at Shenandoah's Pella Corporation plant where he currently serves as a continuous improvement technician specializing in cost savings and efficiencies. Mayher's letter stated that same focus could serve as an opportunity for the county. The job of county supervisor is one of great importance and with many facets to understand all sides and of many issues faced by residents and by the county government itself. If elected, it is my goal to cast thoughtful and objective votes with the Constitution as my guide. Not to be outdone, Page County Democrats staged their midterm caucuses Monday night as well. Approximately 25 people attended three caucus locations in Clarinda, Essex, and Shenandoah. Jennifer Harrington is a past County Democratic Party chair and current precinct captain. While that number may seem small, Harrington says the turnout was good considering no presidential race was at stake and that COVID-19 continues. She adds it was good for party activists to meet in person again. For me anyway, and I think for several others, it was just a really great opportunity to get together again after, you know, really not seeing anybody or, you know, being able to meet in person. We have been having meetings via Zoom. We've got an event coming up on Thursday, but... 
this was really the first time for a lot of us that we were able to be with our you know, friends and neighbors and fellow activists within the Democratic Party. Page County's Democratic Convention is tentatively scheduled for March 26th at the county courthouse in Clarinda. Some big fires kept KMA Land Departments busy this week. First, fire gutted a machine shed in rural Montgomery County. Early firefighters from multiple agencies battled the fire at a structure at 1031A Avenue near Henderson. The cause of the fire is still under investigation. And a lack of moisture and windy conditions were catalysts for a major field fire in the county Wednesday. Montgomery County officials say firefighters from Red Oak and Elliott were among those paged to a ditch fire in the vicinity of I Avenue and Highway 48 late Wednesday morning. Shenandoah hopes to become barbecue nirvana for one weekend this summer. Plans for a Shenandoah Shendig barbecue cook-off were announced at a special presentation at Brown Shoe Fit Thursday evening. Professional and local teams will compete in the inaugural event at Shenandoah's Elks Lodge July 29th and 30th. The Forum to Revitalize Shenandoah, the Shenandoah Chamber and Industry Association, and several local organizations and businesses are collaborating to host the Master's Class Regional Sanctions event, in which competitors square off to cook the best barbecued ribs, chicken, brisket, pork butts, and shoulders. Officials of the Kansas City Barbecue Society will oversee the competition. The cook-off is a dream of KCBS members Phil and Rosemary Morrow of Kansas City, Missouri. Committee co-chair Mace Henson contacted the Morrows following Shenfest regarding their interest in the event. Rosemary, who is a Shenandoah native and 1976 Shenandoah High School graduate, tells KMA News she's thrilled to bring a world-class barbecue competition to her hometown. There absolutely are no words to describe how happy I am. And this has been something, a bucket list of mine, that I have been trying to implement for many years. And this year, just all the stars aligned, and we were able to to work with Mace. Phil Morrow holds a Ph.B. in barbecue philosophy from the esteemed Greasehouse University. Phil says teams will arrive in Shenandoah on Friday, July 29th and begin cooking late that evening or early the next morning. Most of our competitors with the stick burner long-term kind of slow, low and slow cooking start on Friday night about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and that roll, that smoke will roll until turn-in time at noon on Saturday. Some of the others cook a little faster, hot and fast in, with barrels, so they can see a wide variety of cooking implements, vessels, cooking vessels from high dollar to homemade. It doesn't make any difference. Six judges will rate the entries at each table. Rosemary's as teams must meet certain qualifications. To be qualified for the contest, you have to cook chicken, pork ribs, pork butt, or pork shoulder, and brisket. And then the, the points are accumulated, so they will produce a, a reserve grand champion and a grand champion, and then each of the different categories has a top 10 that's awarded during the contest. Organizers are hoping for up to 15 regional teams and 5 to 10 local teams competing in the event. Phil and Rosemary believe those numbers will be exceeded. 15 is a minimum to get a first-year contest as a qualifier. Anything over that's gravy. And I'm going to tell you right now, if there's not 25 teams here, I'll be shocked. 25 uh, or 30. And maybe 30. The, the local, I hope there's a huge influence of, of local cooks. The national and the traveling cook, as you will see, uh, will come in on Friday and leave on Saturday evening after the award ceremony and maybe go to another contest. So they, they're looking for team of the year points. So this is a contest. 
contest, and if there's another one three hours away, they're going to go to it. At least 12 judges, some with worldwide credentials, have applied for the event. Shenandoah's Eagles Lodge is expected to have a benefit motorcycle rally and other events that weekend in conjunction with the cook-off. Other details regarding Shenandoah Shendig will be announced in the near future. Changes in fire department operations and increased seasonal employee wages are part of the City of Shenandoah's proposed budget for next fiscal year. At its regular meeting Tuesday evening, the Shenandoah City Council set a public hearing from March 8th at 6 p.m. on the budget for fiscal 2023, which begins July 1st. Shenandoah City Administrator A.J. Lyman outlined the numbers from various city departments during a budget workshop prior to the regular meeting. Among the major changes is a proposed shift to the fire chief's position from part-time to full-time. Lyman says the volunteer fire department's members approved the proposal. In talking to Justin and the volunteers and the, the full-timers over there, they have built the business case uh, for the work there. The position would also take on some of the building permitting stuff and then also some of the nuisance complaint stuff up to issuing tickets. Lyman says a full-time fire chief could benefit the city in other ways. The goal being that with a full-time chief, we'll have pre-plans for all of our major facilities in town. We'll be doing tornado and fire drills at all the schools and living facilities around town. And it'll help our, our ISO rating, which is how we get uh, classified for fire protection overall, which meant would save us all some money on homeowners and property while saying the city could cover the full-time position through revenues and increased valuations, Lyman adds Fire Chief Justin Marshall and the volunteers are applying for FEMA grant money to cover the additional costs. Lyman says the city would advertise the full-time chief's position with salary to be negotiated. Also included in the fiscal 23 budget are provisions for additional pay for part-time seasonal employees, such as mowers or lifeguards, for example. You know, we're talking to the different department heads, that have summer seasonal hires, you know, the last two seasons we've really struggled to hire anybody at that minimum wage range. So for uh, those that run a mower, we will be paying them $10 an hour starting this summer. And then for lifeguards, they'll start at $9 an hour. And then if they have three or more years of experience, we would bump them to $10 an hour. Pay for shift supervisors is set at $12 an hour, while the pool manager will make $17 an hour. Members of the city's Park and Recreation Board approved the pay hikes at their regular meeting earlier this month. Clarinda School District is among those considering additional pay for staff members enduring adversity created by COVID-19. Near the end of a marathon regular meeting late Wednesday afternoon, the Clarinda School Board heard a proposal for a $1,000 stipend to teachers and other staffers returning for the 2022-23 school year. Clarinda School Superintendent Chris Bergman and Director of Finance and Board Secretary Nancy McKinnon made the proposal. McKinnon says stipends are a big topic of discussion in schools across the state. A lot of districts are doing staff retention bonuses with their ESSER funds. Your smaller districts are concerned because they don't have the big pot of ESSER funds, like the larger districts, and they're including us as larger. So you get Des Moines. Cedar Rapids, they're going to have obviously a bigger pot. For Clarinda, McKinnon says it's been an all-hands-on-deck approach to COVID. COVID has obviously played a huge factor in the school district through all staff. Whether your bus driver taking temperatures with the kids getting on and off, whether you're janitor and custodian, where you're cleaning, sanitizing, whether it's secretaries who are handing out masks, 
for taking care of the students, food service, teachers, everybody's played a part in our team in this school district. Bergman called the proposal food for thought for a future board decision. One thing to always remember, whether it's this financial decision or any financial decision, is what's our school district's personal financial story. And so um, that's why we looked at uh, that thousand dollars and what our kids' needs are for getting that money to kids too. Uh, but we really felt it was important that everyone receive an equal share. And again, that's a decision for the board. Bergman and McKinnon recommend allocating the stipends in December. More discussion is expected at a future board meeting. Farmers Mutual Telephone Company officials say fiber optic internet could make its way into the city of Red Oak. During its regular meeting Monday night, the Red Oak City Council heard a presentation from FMTC CEO Kevin Cabbage on the USDA Rural Development's Broadband Reconnect program and a proposed $37 million broadband project. Cabbage says the USDA has announced the third round of funding for $250 million through the Reconnect program, and this time around there will be a scoring criterion. He added changes to download and upload speed requirements for this round make the city of Red Oak eligible for the program. Uh, what I have highlighted is the rurality, the affordability, net neutrality, and wholesale services. We feel that we will score very, very well in those categories. Although the criteria now is 100 meg down and 20 meg up, uh, that did make the city of, of Red Oak eligible for funding from this particular program but they still will give you bonus points if you're in an area that's receiving 25-3 or worse. In total, Cabbage says the proposed project would include the city of Red Oak, the city of Clarenda, the remaining unserved rural areas surrounding it, the city of Bedford, and the city of Gravity, with no anticipated cost to the towns involved. Cabbage says the project could cover nearly 3,000 homes and involve over 50 miles of fiber buried in the ground in Red Oak alone. Total of a possible sub count of 2,894 uh, houses and businesses that we can connect up to. Just a little over 54 miles of fiber is what we'll be putting in the ground and the cost is uh, $14.7 million. Between the four communities, Cabot says FMTC will be asking for nearly $37 million, good for almost 15% of the available pool of money through the 50-50 grant and loan program. While Cabot says asking for a large percentage is a risk, he adds this type of money doesn't come around very often. And FMTC does have a good standing with the USDA. We feel that uh, we have a good track record uh, having received two previous awards from Reconnect, uh, we know that we know the program well. Uh, we work with the USDA folks well. We have a very good reputation of getting our projects done and getting them done ahead of time. The board took no formal action on the matter Monday, and the application for the Reconnect program is due on February 22nd. The U.S. Department of Agriculture Rural Development has invested $47 million into Iowa's community infrastructure. Iowa USDA Rural Development Director Teresa Greenfield made that announcement at a briefing at the Villisca Community Center Thursday morning. Greenfield says the nearly $50 million investment comes from the USDA's almost $1 billion investment into community infrastructure in rural towns throughout the country. Included in the latest round of funding, Greenfield says, are grants for both the city of Villisca 
and Montgomery County Memorial Hospital. If you've been to Villisca, some of that money is going to a street project, but also to help with some of their fire equipment. Um, and then, of course, Montgomery County, the Red Oak Hospital has been around for so long, and they're receiving equipment, resources to help um, improve some of the equipment in their community hospital. The USDA Rural Development awarded the city of Villisca a nearly $500,000 grant, while Montgomery County Memorial Hospital received roughly $200,000 in the latest round of funding. Also present at the meeting, representatives of the city of Nottoway, which received a $110,000 grant for street improvements. While the USDA Rural Development has several different programs for potential projects, Greenfield adds their offices can also help find other possible funding sources. More information, call the Iowa headquarters at 515-284-4663. That wraps up This Week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.